Hey, so, I, so I'm so glad you're here. I add my welcome to Todd's. And um, if you've got your Bibles, go to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the middle portion of 1 John chapter 3. It's, um, we've been uh, walking through this letter that John wrote. And, and I think one of the things we continue to say is that the, that the letter, um, John, this, it's, it's, what, it's what only some one can do. I mean, only wise, you know, John's wise, and, and only wise wisdom can write the way that John writes. Because he, he writes in such a simple way, it's not hard to, to read, and ultimately it's not hard to understand. And at the same time, in all of this simplicity, John writes some of the the most profound and significant theology in the New Testament. It's, it's, some of the old, it's the oldest writing we have in our Bible, the Gospel of John, John's letters, and then ultimately Revelation. It's, it's written at the end of the first century. The church is now in its second and its third generation, and he's writing to believers at the end of his life. And John desperately wants his readers, he desperately wants us to be people that have this assurance um, in our knowledge of God, assurance in our salvation because of Jesus, assurance that the gospel that we heard and the gospel that we believed has taken hold in our life. He wants us to know the joy of the Christian life, and he wants us to know it for all of our life. He wants us to continue to grow, to continue to grow in our knowledge and, and experience of, of what it means to be loved by God and to know his son Jesus and to continue to grow in our joy of that relationship. And so um, where we are this morning, is, it's in, uh, I'm going to start in chapter 3, I'm, uh, verse 11, and I'm going to read to verse 18. And I want you to see what he says in this section. It's, it's it's profound, the, the contrast that he draws out here. Th this is what he says, beginning in chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. The, the, when you first heard the gospel, that's what he means. For, from the beginning of your salvation, when you first um, knew Jesus... In this message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, 
Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. This is the word of the Lord. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, would you help us this morning to hear what you have inspired? Father, I pray your spirit would open our hearts and our minds, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged and Father, convict us where we need to be convicted. Father, believing that even in that conviction, we can come to you with confession. And that in your love for us, because of your son's sacrifice in our place, that you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and So, Father, we ask this the only way we can, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, there in verse 11, if you'll you'll look, he begins by saying, this is what we've heard from the beginning, and what we've heard from the beginning is that we should love one another. And we've heard this from the beginning because what Jesus says, I mean, if you went to John 3.16, which is, you know, the, the... the kind of verse of Christianity that that God so loved the world that he sent his only son and that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And so by the fact of us hearing the gospel, it's hearing the gospel and understanding that God loves us and and that because of his love, he sent his son to be the substitute, to be the one that would that would um, suffer the penalty for our sins, that, that the gospel that we receive, that we believe that, that God sent his son, it is a gospel that is grounded in the love of God. And Jesus will, will go on as he tells his disciples, and listen, since God loved you, since I loved you, and I want you to be in me, I want you to know what it is that I'm in you and that I abide in you. I want you to love like I've loved. That that the way in which you you experience in your life this love that God has loved you with is that you begin to love one another as God has loved you. Then you, you begin to see that, oh, you are a transformed person. There is a love that has that has come to you from the outside, that is now in you, that is working in you. It has transformed you. It is, it is making, creating, molding you into a new creation. The moment you're saved, the Bible says you're a new creation. At the same time, you're, you're becoming that new creation. You're becoming who you are. One of the things that John's saying is, listen, when we love one another in the way that God loved us, and there's great assurance that comes from that, we begin to love in a way that is foreign to us, is foreign to our natural man, we begin to love in a supernatural way. We should love one another. And then he goes on in verse 12 and says, we, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother and why did he murder his why did he murder him because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous 
We're to love one another and we're to not be like Cain. It's a fascinating place to go as he begins to illustrate this love. Well, this love one another, if you traced it through the New Testament, you see that it shows up in several places. It's, it's in all of the Gospels in one form or another. In fact, in John 13, after Jesus has washed his disciples' feet, he tells them, he says, listen, a new command I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then in Romans chapter 13, what Paul does is he sums up these commandments. He says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and and any other commandment are summed up in this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. In Galatians, he says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. James calls it the royal law, according to Scripture. There's a scene in the life of Jesus that Matthew records in Matthew chapter 19. A rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he asks, okay, what, what must I do to have eternal life? And after pointing out, um, you know, after, you know, good teacher, you know, what must I do? Jesus points out that, listen, God is good. Only God is good. And everything we might call good is relative to him. And then Jesus instructs him, so, so, so you're after eternal life. And Jesus begins by saying, well, we'll keep the commandments. And the rich young ruler wants to know, well, which ones am I supposed to keep? And Jesus tells him, you know, the, the second half of the Ten Commandments, essentially, and then includes the summary statement that says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so the rich young ruler, he, he tells Jesus, which is fascinating to me, he says, what? Well, I've kept all of these. And essentially what he's implying is, listen, I've kept all of these, but I know that I still lack something. He's considered himself to be a moral person, but he did not consider himself to be saved. Well, Jesus tells him that if he wants to be perfect, that he should go and sell what he has and give it to the poor then he'd have a treasure in heaven. And then Jesus says, and come, follow me. Well, what happens is the rich young man, the rich young ruler, he walks away because the price was too high. The loss of his temporary holdings, those were more valuable to him than eternal gains. And the disciples, they were alarmed by this situation. They said, well, who who in the world could be saved with a standard like this? And Jesus assures them that with man, it's impossible. It's only possible with God. And then Jesus goes on to summarize with this this reality with with one of his kingdom principles. And and Jesus' kingdom principles are these upside-down truths. They're truths... 
But to us that live in this world, they seem to be truths that are upside down. Listen to what he says. He ends this by saying, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. In the very next chapter, what he'll say is is what we read this morning as we were charging the elders and deacons. Deacons, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. It's similar to what Jesus told the disciples earlier in Matthew 10 as as he sent them out. He said, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And as Jesus' ministry moves closer to the cross, he, he spoke more frequently these upside-down kingdom principles. The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And it shouldn't surprise us. See, these upside-down kingdom principles flow from what Jesus knew about how God the Father called His people to live in this world. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers, the religious people, all of them were coming to Jesus with questions. They wanted to know how He would answer. Surely some were trying to trip Him up and to trap Him with His words. Others, these religious leaders, they would come because they found themselves, along with the crowds, amazed at the wisdom of his words. The last week of Jesus' life, he's, he's in his, his, his earthly ministry life. He's in Jerusalem. So the last week of Jesus' life will never come. You know, he's eternal. But the last week of his earthly ministry, he's in Jerusalem. It's Passover week. People were preparing their sacrifices, and Jesus was preparing himself to be the sacrifice. And it's the time of year where, especially in Jerusalem at this time, everyone's attention was on God and on his word, and everyone's focused on what, you know, getting right with God. That was, that was why they were there at the Passover. And a lawyer approaches him, and he, and he says to Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And he's a, and he's a religious man. He's a, he's a religious lawyer. He's one of the religious leaders. And Jesus says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. That's the greatest and first commandment. And the second one's like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two, all the... All the law and all the prophets hang. Love God, love others. Well, and as simple as it sounds, but like the rich young ruler, it's impossible for us to attain. It's not impossible for us to talk a good game. In fact, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they were great with words. The problem is that's all it was, words. Jesus said to them, they they preach, but they do not practice. And more than that, he goes on in in, in Matthew 23, not only 
the things they actually do, they don't do them for other people. They do them for themselves. They're, they do them to be seen and to be noticed and to make much of themselves. And then they turn around and they demand things from others. They served themselves because they loved themselves and they viewed others simply as an, as an audience or as props to be used for their own gain. What Jesus says about them is that they're greedy, they're self-indulgent hypocrites who are blind and filthy and dead. In fact, he goes so far to tell them that they're murderers, that the blood of the innocent, beginning with Abel, is on their hands. That's why here in verse 12, John writes, we should not be like Cain. That's what he means. He's picking up where Jesus left off with the Pharisees and the religious leaders and and with everyone who talks a good game and tries to exalt themselves at the expense of others. Jesus told his opponents that they were children of hell. John's using the story of Cain to say that his opponents, that he's writing about, they're of the evil one, and like Cain, they're murderers, full of hate and marked by death and do not have eternal life. What John says is, don't be like that. Don't be like Cain. In 13, verse 13, he says, don't be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. Jesus said the same thing. Don't be shocked. If the world that, that doesn't know the love of God hates you, they hate you because they hated me. Don't be shocked by that. See, I think what he's, what he's pointing to is that as we love people, if they don't know God, they may end up hating us because the reality is that the love of God, as we experience the love of God, and a lot of ways in which we experience the love of God is we experience love from one another. But, but that kind of love, that's convicting. And how many of you have had somebody that didn't like you and you were nice to them and they, they hated you? you know, it's like the heaping coals upon their head. The, the reality is holiness, this kind of love, this kind of holiness, it, it continually rebukes those that are ungodly, continually convicts those who don't know God's love. See, it was the wickedness of Cain's character that made him hate the good that was in his brother Abel. See, when you see somebody that's filled with hate and envy and malice, it's because their own life, in their own life, there's no holiness. They don't know the love of God, and there's no exception to the rule. Holiness 
and love, they always go together. Where, where, where love is absent, there, there won't be holiness. See, love, as John's talking about it here, and we'll talk about it more specifically in a second, but, but love, it, it seeks the highest good for the one who's loved. So we want to seek another's highest good. At whatever expense may be to ourselves, we want to seek their good above our own. And we need wisdom here. What some people want is not always what they need. Love doesn't seek to enable sin in another's life, but love seeks their highest good good. Sometimes you'll be hated for it. In verse 14, he tells us that, listen, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers, and whoever does not love abides in death. Then he goes on, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The, the pat, so, from life to death, it's the reverse of this natural order. Only God can do that. What God does, I mean, the, the, um, the foundation of our faith is that God brings dead things to life. It's what Hebrews says about Abraham. He believed God. He, he took a man who was as good as dead with a wife whose womb was as good as dead, and he brought life from that, that he conquers death, that he brings life, that we're made alive because Christ has taken our death and was raised to new life. It's, it's a change in us that's, that's supernatural, and it's a change that would never have occurred if left to ourselves. And then he goes on, he says, look, every, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. To hate our brother is to murder him or her in our hearts. Though we may not carry out the action, and, and we might not do that because we're fear of punishment or, or whatever, we, we wish that that person was dead. By ignoring another person, we may end up treating them as though they were dead. Hatred is shown. It can be shown passively. It can be shown actively. John seems to say, have the same teaching in mind as, as Jesus spoke on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 21 and 22. See, in the heart, there's no difference. To, to hate is to despise, to cut off a relationship. Murder is simply the, the physical fulfillment of that attitude. It's eternal life abiding in, abiding in Him. What He means is, we, when we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, abiding in Christ is being at home in Him, letting Him be at home in us. I don't think what He means is that if a person commits hatred or any other sin, he ceases to be a Christian. But what He means is that when a Christian hates, when a believer hates, he stops making use of the power of Christ that is in him. You no longer are living with Christ at home in your life. You're not at home with the power of God. What, 
What's happening is you're no longer living, living like a believer, living like the believer that you have become. You, you slip back. The evil one, he's at home in your life. If as a believer, as a Christian, we, we hate someone, we've become this temporary slave of the evil one. We've found ourselves at home with, with the murderer, if you will. We may be children of God, but our hate is the work of the devil in our life. He uses the word murder. It's, 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 it's shocking, really. If you hate your brother, you're a murderer. I mean, it seems like a long step. You know, I mean, it's seemingly a, a simple thing like anger and hatred all the way to murder might not even make the connection of those two without the Word of God. But if we think about it, I mean, so does your heart this morning, does it, does it burn with anger or hatred towards someone who's done something wrong to you? Just go back a week or two or a year or two. And you just can't stand that person. You don't want to be around them. You wish they'd go away. You wish they'd leave you alone. You wish they'd never, you know, you'd never had to think about them again. Well, if, that's, if you're struggling with that, the Holy Spirit, writing through the, the pen of John, says that here, here's, here's what's really at stake. If the, if the circumstances are right and the penalty could be avoided, you'd murder that person if you could. And, and see, that all that may keep you from doing that, I mean, is fear of, of, of what God might do, fear of what man might do, if there was some way you could get away with it. Hatred, sooner or later, it flashes out. And if left unchecked, it would flash out into, into murder, like it did with Cain. And he destroyed his brother Abel, where hate is what John is saying is murder is a possibility and in fact in the eyes of God it's as good as done God reads the heart yeah, and he doesn't have to wait and see our actions we're guilty well he begins by by measuring love by what it is not love is not what Cain does but love is, we can see love in Christ. Look at verse 16. This is what he says. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. By this we know love. What's love? So, so how, do you, how you define love's important. If we define it the wrong way, then uh, then everyone passes 
or, or no one passes the love test. So to understand the, the biblical idea of love, you, you got to, you know, there's this vocabulary in, in, uh, the, amongst the ancient Greeks, and they gave us this, this language that the New Testament was written in, and, and they have four words for love, four that, that are relevant. Eros, that's one word. You might guess what it from the word itself. It's erotic love. It's sexual love. There's storge. It's a it's a family love. It's the kind of love there is between a parent and child or family members in general, not not in laws necessarily, but um, not true. I storge my in laws. There's phileia. It's the third word for love. It's, it's this brotherly friendship. It's affection. It's the, it's the love of, of deep friendship. Pro- probably it's the highest form of love we're capable of without God's help. The last one's agape. You know the word. It, it describes a love that loves without changing, or or loves without requiring change. It's a self-giving love that gives without demanding or expecting repayment. It's a love so great that it can be given to the unlovable and to the unappealing. It's a love that loves even when it's rejected. Agape love, it it gives, um, and it loves because it wants to. It doesn't demand or expect repayment from from, from the love given. It gives because it loves. It does not love in order to receive. It's the kind of, it's the only kind of love that you could have for the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, if you love them, bold enough to wear a cowboy shirt. You love them realizing you get nothing in return. It's the kind of love that, that we see in mothers, right? And they love their kids. And so much of the time, they don't get anything in Return, it's a love of sacrifice. They love. That love's not dependent on what they receive back. They love. This is how we know what love is. We look at Jesus. Jesus laid his life down for us. See, some of you don't know this. You still think that in order to be pleasing to God, in order to be loved by God, you need to be a good person. You don't need to be good. You need to be loved because you're not good. You're not good. Somebody else said, no, 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 I'm a good person. I was like, no, no, you're not. But you're loved. Your security is not in your ability. It is in his affection. Your security comes from his 
affection. We know that Jesus loved us because he died for us. We know that Jesus loves us because he lived for us. We know that Jesus loves us because he's alive today. He died in our place. He rose from the grave. And John wants his readers to know. He wants you to know. He wants me to know. We are a loved people. So many people walk around the earth and they're seeking out love and they're giving themselves away sexually, relationally, emotionally, spiritually to other people, desperately crying out for love, not knowing. They've already been loved. When Jesus hung on the cross, breathed his last, Father, forgive them. That's love. And then he said, it, it's finished. The love had been applied practically to the children of God. Our sins were on him. We were forgiven. We were loved. And he loves you today. You, you don't have any more love and when you lay your life down for your friends, and Jesus Christ is the friend who laid his life down for us. We were talking about this on Tuesday. All the teaching pastors get together on Tuesday, and we were talking about it. And this last Tuesday, we just so happened to be at Barry Mailer's house, Barry um, you haven't come to Wednesday night uh, worship and word. Uh, come or uh, come on Wednesday nights. Barry teaches on Wednesday nights. Um, it's kind of a midweek service, and he's teaching through um, the beginning of Genesis right now. Barry is a great teacher. He was a pastor for twenty plus years. Great teacher. And we were talking about this, the five of us, and Barry, and. You know, as John's saying all these, these words, I mean, it's simple to read, it's simple to understand, it's so profound to work out. Barry made this statement. He said, listen, I think the heart of it is, you know, right there in verse 16. By this we know love that he laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. He laid his life down for us. Barry went on to say, so I don't, listen, I don't know. I don't know if this is exactly how it worked out, but I mean, John, John, the one who's writing this, John was the only one of the disciples that was there at the cross. He was at the foot of the cross. He watched, he, he watched Jesus lay his life down for him. It's like it took him 60 years. Be able to come to terms with that. He walked up to the cross as the son of thunder. And he left that moment. The one whom Jesus loves. That's what he would call himself. You think, well, that might be arrogant of John to say about himself. Well, I'm the one who Jesus Loves. No, it's not arrogance. It's the kind of humility that 
crushes all the old you out of you. You're able to say, you know who I am? I'm the one who Jesus loves. That's how we know what love is. Spurgeon would say that if he laid his life down for me, how great my sins must have been. If he laid his life down for me, how great must his love have been. If he laid his life down for me, how safe we are in the love of Christ. But John doesn't stop there. He won't let us stop there. In verse 17, he says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how, how does God's love abide in him? And the answer is, it doesn't. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. If we profess to be Christians, let us be Christians in deed. Let us show our love to Christ by loving one another. If you see someone in need, aid them. If they need encouragement and comforting, give them good encouragement and good comforting. If they need help or financial aid, let, let them have that too. Love seeks the highest good for the one who's loved Virgin, he gave this illustration. He, he said, um, in, in the old days of persecution, there were always some noble souls who tried to hide away the Christians from those who sought their lives, although they did so at the risk of their own lives. And many a Christian has given himself up to die in order to save the lives of his fellow Christians. Some of the old people came tottering before the judge because they thought that they would not so much be missed from the church as the younger ones who would be. On the other hand, sometimes the young men would gently push back the fathers and say to them, no, you're old. You'd better linger here a while and teach the young. We young people are strong, so we'll go. We'll die for Christ. One of the contentions that the early church wrestled with in persecuting times was who should first die for Christ because they were willing to lay their lives down for their brothers. So what do we do with this? One, to be be people who agape love, who, who we seek to love in a way we love in a way for the highest benefit of the one that we're loving even at great expense to ourselves, especially at great expense to ourselves. The first thing we've got to do for many of us is that we've got to start noticing that we'd have eyes opened 
to those that are around us, eyes that we have trained ourselves to ignore, reminding ourselves of Philippians 2 that having the mind of Christ in humility, we would count others more significant than ourselves and let each of you not look on his own interests, but also to the interest of others. It means that we've got to go against the grain of our natural self, against the grain of our culture. I was talking to, we met as a staff on Thursday, or South Campus staff, and I was talking about the there's two different kinds of people. There's the here I am kind of people. And there's the there you are kind of people. Listen, we have an entire culture. I mean, the river is raging and it's moving in one direction and the direction is here I am. Here I am. It is the foundation of what, what social media is. Here I am. Notice me. Like me. When that, everyone around us becomes an audience and a prop when we live our life that way. Believers, we're, we're called to be there you are. You just notice it. Next time you're in the grocery store, you're in some place where there are people around you that your eyes have been trained to ignore. Notice them. See the people around you. Respond with a heart that says, there you are. Make a connection. Look, look them in the eye. That we would seek to... So you can't... What happens is people say, why? Well, humanity is huge. I can't love all of humanity. And so you end up loving nobody. There are people that will, that will come across your path today that are desperate for the agape love that flows through believers that has come straight from God only through believers. This is there you are. I was waiting. I've been waiting for you today. Well, what do we do about the hatred that we may be experiencing this morning? I'm not naive to think some of you didn't walk in here with it. Well, the answer to that is, is right here in what John has written. You find it all through the Scriptures. That, that is that you and I, what we've got to do, the first thing is we've got to judge this thing. We've got to deal with it as God sees it. If it's anger, if it's hatred, whatever it may be, you can apply to any sin that has you in its grip. Call it what it is. Call it what God calls it agree with him that that thing is coming to your heart. It originates not with God. It originates with the enemy. You are culpable for taking that in. 
agree with God and tell him that you agree with him about it. When you do and you're willing to say, if you're honest, that sin that I love so much, that sin that seems to bring me so much gratification, it's wrong. It is sin. It's something the enemy would love nothing more than to control me with. Confess it to God. Get it out on the table. Agree with him about it. And when you do, whether you can ever imagine it today or not, you receive the answering power of God's love poured into your cleansed heart. God's kind of love, the love that loves the unlovely, love of the person who really doesn't deserve that love, that gets poured out through us. And the Holy Spirit's ready to do that. He's ready to pour it out. And in the place of your hatred, pour out to you the peace of God that passes all understanding. Grants you the ability to forgive and forget and to pick up the pieces whether the other person does or not and go on walking in the Lord.